Welcome to this week's module on endocrine disorders. Today we're going to talk about the diagnostic workup for a few commonly seen endocrine disorders in both primary care and in acute care. And that is your congenital adrenal hyperplasia, hypothyroidism, and type 1 diabetes. We're going to discuss the normal values for each of the tests that we're going to talk about. And then I want to review the interpretation of the results. So essentially is we're going to talk about what these results mean. So first we'll talk about congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And this is a condition <clears throat> um, where there's an increase in androgens or the male sex hormones, as well as a low cortisol level. And in some cases, they may even have too little or too low of an aldosterone level. So the adrenal glands are not working efficiently. Um, we can detect this on the newborn screen, but as I talked about in previous lectures, newborn screening is different from state to state, although I think the congenital adrenal hypoplasia is covered in most uh, newborn screenings around the country. One of the simplest things we can do to look <clears throat> um, at these patients is get a complete metabolic profile. And this allows us to assess to see if there's any type of electrolyte derangements or salt wasting. So these patients have issues with retaining uh, sodium, um, <clears throat> as well as they may have other derangements such as uh, potassium and uh, other electrolytes. One of the other tests that they will do to confirm the diagnosis is to run a serum ACTH level or an adrenal cortical hormone level. This is the hormone that actually stimulates cortisol production within the adrenal cortex. It is controlled in the hypothalamic hormone, CRF, and it also has a negative feedback uh, system with cortisol. The normal range is usually less than 46, um, but you can see elevations in patients that have confirmed Addison disease, congenital adrenal hypoplasia, tumors that, can, that produce ACTH. <clears throat> and then if there's a decrease in this level, um, it's usually secondary to adrenal cortical insufficiency, certain adrenal cancers, as well as hypopituitarism. We can also run a stem test for ACTH. Um, we use uh, a synthetic ACTH known as cosinotropin, um, and it has the full biological potent, uh, potency of that of the ACTH that you make naturally. Um, we use it <clears throat> as a rapid stimulator of cortisol and aldosterone secretion. They come in a variety of testing. We can have a low dose, stem test, high dose, eight hours, and 48 hours. For the pediatric ranges, we're shooting for uh, <clears throat> a dose of cosinotropin of around 125 micrograms to 750 micrograms. And when we do the low dose testing, usually the low dose testing is the lower dose, so about 125 micrograms. <clears throat> and when we run this test, we wanna assess for a value of, of 18 micrograms per deciliter to be to have normal adrenal function. If it's less than that, then we're, we're concerned with deficiency. If it's higher than that, then there's overproduction. For high dose, the value should be greater than 20 micrograms per deciliter. And for the eight hour test, which I have never run before, I've done mostly the low dose testing um, in our pediatric population. <clears throat> but again, you're looking at the level to be higher than 20 micrograms per deciliter in 20 to 60 minutes, and it should be higher than 25 micrograms per milliliter after six to eight hours. The next test that we 
uh, <clears throat> assess for adrenal, adrenal hypoplasia is the cortisol level. As mentioned previously, ACTH is responsible for creating uh, or inducing or yeah, inducing cortisol. Um, <clears throat> but we can test for this specifically as well. We also test cortisol for patients that are stressed so they can have sepsis, severe illness, um, cortisol levels will spike. And then once you deplete your cortisol, then they start to fall. As it is a glucocorticoid steroid, it's secreted in the adrenal cortex. Um, it does play a major role in our macronutrient met metabolism, your proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, and it suppresses inflammation and allergic activities. So we test this, you can either test it in the evening or first thing in the morning, or sometimes we'll do serial testing throughout the day. Uh, <clears throat> but the morning levels should be somewhere between eight to 22 micrograms per deciliter. And in the evening, it, you should have a depletion. So your highest will be in the morning and then it will deplete throughout the day. So you should have less than 10 micrograms per deciliter um, there. We use this to determine if there's a primary or secondary adrenal insufficiency. And it's also helpful to diagnose Cushing syndrome. In the module for this week, I did post a video on Cushing syndrome, and I believe there's also an article on it as well. Uh, patients who are stressed with severe illness, like I mentioned earlier, or sepsis have a lower, they have much lower levels of cortisol, and then we would give them a corticosteroid to help boost that level. We can also test it in the saliva or in, the, or, or in a 24-hour urine as well. Other imaging we can do for the uh, congenital adrenal hypoplasia is we can look at CT scans or MRIs. I found a very uh, interesting article on <clears throat> the difference between the two, and there really isn't much other than CT exposes the patient to much more radiation. MRIs tend to be much more expensive, but they both, a non-contrast CT scan and an MRI can give you relatively the same information to assess the pathology of the adrenal glands. Um, in neonatal patients or in our younger patients, sometimes we'll just do an ultrasound to assess the size of the adrenal glands. If your adrenal glands are enlarged, then we can go ahead forward with further testing. If they're normal size, they may not, or they may just do the serum tests. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, hypothyroidism. Again, this is a decreased production of your uh, thyroid hormones. Um, it is also listed on the newborn screen. I know it is here in Florida and around other states around the country. The labs that we're going to use to assess um, thyroid function are your thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH. Uh, your T4, total T4, um, <clears throat> is one that's used quite a bit. And then your T3 can also be assessed, but not as often. Um, to assess if there are hybrid, uh, thyroid um, illnesses. So off to the right of this screen here, I have, I pulled this right from your diagnostics textbook, um, and it gives you the ranges of what the normal TSH level should be by age up into adulthood. Um, <clears throat> TSH is secreted by the pituitary and it regulates T3 and T4, and T4 actually converts to T3 um, in, the, in the body. It should be used as the initial screening diagnostic tool. So oftentimes if you have a child that you're concerned may have a thyroid dysfunction, we'll do uh, TSH uh, levels. Um, <clears throat> and oftentimes in my practice, we've done TSH and T4 levels. Um, elevated, if it's elevated more than three times the normal value, it can indicate mild hypofunction, but some books will even say you could see levels a hundred times. 
um, the normal value, which would be more of a severe case. It's elevated in patients that have that have that are underdosed on their replacement therapy. Um, so if you have someone that is on Synthroid or is receiving thyroid hormone replacement medication, you want to check your TSH and your T4s to make sure that you have good regulation of the medication as well as ensuring the patient is stable. If you see a decreased um, uh, level of TSH, it could indicate Graves' disease or thyroiditis. Now, in the next slide, or in a couple of slides, I have a breakdown of the T4 and TSH because you do have to measure them together and you want to see the comparisons if one is high and the other is low, um, so on and so forth. So we'll talk about that in just a second. For your total T4, also known as your thyroxone, th thyroxine level, it is secreted by the thyroid and is bound to prealbumin and albumin. It is converted to T3, which is responsible for the hormonal action of the thyroid. It reflects the, the, the secretion activity. The normal ranges are between six and 12 micrograms per deciliter. When you see an increase, it could be hyperthyroid. You could also see it increased in pregnancy. And there are medications that can cause uh, <clears throat> this level to rise. Conversely, if we look at decreased levels, you're looking at hypothyroidism. You could also have low protein. As I mentioned previously, it is bound to protein. So if you don't have enough protein to deliver the, thi uh, the T4, then you're going to see uh, hypothyroid um, symptoms in your patient. There are some medications that can also decrease the level, such as Dilantin. If you're giving exogenous T3 or testosterone or giving ACTH or corticosteroids. Now, I pulled this from your textbook, and it's, it's a very nice graph because it has on the top here, you can see this, you know, the TSH, whether it's normal, low, or high. Comparing that to your T4, also looking at normal, low, or high. So when you look at a normal TSH and a normal T4 value, you're looking, and you'll hear this term quite a bit, it's called euthyroid, which means normal thyroid function. And if you go on to this graph, it really explains like if you have a normal T4, but a low TSH, then you're going to look at subclinical early hyperthyroidism. There are certain drugs such as steroids, or it could be a non-thyroid illness, which is what NTI stands for. Again, if you have a, a normal T4, but an elevated TSH, you're going to look at it could be subclinical or early signs of hypothyroidism. It could not be related to the thyroid illness, or it could be induced by drugs. And the one drug that I've seen in my practice most often cause what we call a sick euthyroid is amiodarone. So you'll get an elevation in your TSH levels, but relatively normal T4 levels. Um, <clears throat> and so you have to just be aware that there really isn't much to do if you know that you're giving amy amiodarone other than surveillance it. Um, oftentimes we'll get endocrine involved um, just to evaluate it. <clears throat> but for the most part, um, this is this is very common with amiodarone. So for those of you that work in cardiac ICUs, you will see this pretty frequently. 
It could also mean there's an insufficient uh, T4 therapy for hypothyroidism. So if you're not giving enough Synthroid or you're not having enough uh, medication to regulate, um, <clears throat> then you can see those levels low. And also remember that when you initially start or around, yeah, the first four to six weeks of therapy for patients that are, that are hypothyroid, you may see an elevated TSH and normal T4 until everything stabilizes out. When you look at a low... <clears throat> A low T4 and a normal TSH, again, this can be related to hypothyroidism. Um, it could be drug effects such as dilantin, androgens, salicylates, um, te uh, tegretol, and rifampin. If both are low, both T4 and TSH, now you, have, you could have a secondary hypothyroidism, certainly. And then there are other drugs such as dopamine, T3, and steroids. And then if you have a low T4 and a high TSH, it's, again, this could be drugs, it could be primary hypothyroidism, so on and so forth. So I just wanted to kind of show you this chart. I found it to be very helpful, especially when I'm looking at various different uh, causes of elevation or decreased levels for TSH and T4. Now let's move on to diabetes. Diabetes we see commonly in children Type 1 diabetes is probably the most prevalent, although today we are seeing more and more kids who are type 2 diabetics, especially as they enter the pre-adolescent and adolescent age group. Um, <clears throat> so one of the tests that we can do, or actually sometimes endocrine will order, a C-peptide. And this actually allows us to measure pancreatic B, beta cell function. It serves as a valuable index for insulin secretion. So we can actually see if we have good beta cell function and do we have good insulin secretion. <clears throat> it's used for estimating insulin levels in the presence of antibodies or exogenous insulin for those that are already receiving it. The normal range is 0.9 to 7 um, nanograms per milliliter. Um, and if you see an increased level in your C-peptide, it could be type 2 diabetes, and when you have a decreased level, more often than not, it's a type 1, meaning that they're not, your beta cells are not making, or your islet cells are not making enough insulin um, for the patient to maintain a normal um, sugar level. Another test that's commonly drawn, and we, we <clears throat> use this probably more in the inpatient setting than the outpatient, is a beta-hydroxybutyrate. And this allows us to assess for ketone bodies in the blood. And in fact, we're actually assessing to see if they're making, they're, they're still continuously making ketones, even if you have a subclinical ketosis picture. Um, the normal range is between 0 .0, 0 0.02 to 0.27 millimoles per liter. Um, we use this uh, often in DKA management, that's diabetic ketoacidosis, and it's also used in the assessment, uh, assessing for inborn errors of metabolism in children and neonates. So sometimes you'll see this ordered um, for those two different conditions. Um, we can also see increased levels in patients that are, have an alcoholic ketoacidosis, a lactic acidosis, liver disease, infections, and salicylate poisoning. The one test that, that our endocrine docs will do when patients come in with diabetes is a hemoglobin A1C. And the, the, the nice thing about this test is that glucose binds to the hemoglobin throughout the lifespan of the red blood cell. And this will actually be proportional to the mean plasma glucose levels 
for six to 12 weeks. So it gives us a reflective picture of how the patient has been managing their diabetes over the last two, um, two to three months. So a normal hemoglobin A1C for an adult is around 5.6% or less. In children, um, it should be relatively the same. However, our diabetic children, we allow them to be a little bit higher uh, because we know that they're kids. We know that they're still growing. We know that there's um, can sometimes be difficulties with diabetic, uh, with their um, diet intake and what have you. So we tend to let them be a little bit higher on the range as a maintenance level, not too high. They usually like it less than seven, somewhere between six and six and a half. Uh, but if you're being, if you're just doing a screening, it should be less than 5.6%. If it's between 5.7 and 6.4%, then that patient is at risk for diabetes. So action should be taken such as education or maybe management to help <clears throat> reduce those risks. And then if they're greater than 6.5%, um, they're definitely within the diabetic range. And sometimes it could tell you, it could tell the doctors are, if the patient has, has been effectively utilizing their in, insulin diet modifications, exercise, all make up a part of that. It's used, um, if it's increased, there are other reasons that can cause an increased level. Could be an iron deficiency anemia. Again, this impacts the hemoglobin, splenectomy, um, elevated triglycerides or alcohol ingestion. If you see a low level, um, it could be the patient just received a blood transfusion, so therefore there's not enough glucose bound to the, to the hemoglobin. We also see decreased levels in pregnancy, as well as if someone has a large ingestion of vitamin C or vitamin E, and also in some hemoglobinopathies. So these are just a few of the common tests that you will see done in our endocrine population. I've also put an article in on growth hormone um, deficiencies. This is usually seen in patients that have, um, they're short for stature, you know, the primary care doctor may be concerned or the family may be concerned when we look at the growth charts and we see the child falling below um, the fifth percentile and then often they'll make a a consultation to endocrinology um, to have them take a closer look and they'll do some stem testing. I didn't include those in this uh, um, in the PowerPoint slides because this is not usually done in the primary care office but it is run usually in the endocrine <clears throat> clinic um, and I have put an article within the required reading for you to review just so you're, you're aware of the different testing that's being done for these patients.